electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. So goes Apple, so goes the market. The tech giant having an awful start to the year. The major average is also struggling out of the gate in 24. So if Apple falters, will it drag the rest of the market down with it? We'll debate that. Plus, stalling out. One year ago, the EV boom was all the rage. But today, there are new challenges that could be holding back sales growth and the stocks. A deep dive under the hood coming up. And later, as Carter Braxtonworth would say, a bearish to bullish reversal by one of our traders on NVIDIA. The airline's flying high despite a jump in oil prices in Maple Bear Blues, a new low for the Instacart parent company. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Sue Grasso, Dan Nathan, and Julie Beal. We'll get to the markets and the major averages closing lower for the week, the first time that's happened in almost two and a half months. Apple a big drag, falling over 6% since Monday. Much more on that coming up. But we begin with a losing week for Tesla and most of the major automakers. While year-on-year EV sales continue to climb, the pace of electric adoption is beginning to show signs of fatigue. Our own Phil LeBeau is here to take us inside the numbers. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa, a lot of people have been asking me, what's wrong with the EV market? Why isn't it going as fast as it was a year ago? Oh, it's growing. It's just that perhaps expectations were getting a little too frothy in terms of how quickly it would be growing. A little bit of reality check in terms of the numbers and EV sales. EVs in the U.S. in 2023, now this is according to Motor Intelligence, made up 7.6% of the market. Look at the growth compared to 22 and 21. It's been very steady And again, 7.6% of the market might get close to 9%, 9 9.5%, 10% next year. Tesla is is the stock I want to show you. The sales last year in the U.S., overall, deliveries were up about 38% worldwide, up 25.4% in the U.S. So they've had steady growth, especially when it comes to the Model Y and the Model 3. And it brings up the question, well, is Tesla still in charge of the market? And how much has their dominance eroded? Has it eroded? Yes, their market share has come back, largely because there are so many other EVs that are in the market right now. And this is the comparison of EVs versus hybrids. Hybrids have outpaced EVs in the last year as consumers rotated towards a cheaper option, if you will, because EVs are about $10,000 on average more expensive than hybrids, at least at this time. In terms of EV market share, you've got Tesla at 55.1%, and then it's Hyundai, Kia, GM, Ford, Volkswagen. They're all growing their sales. It's just that when you take a look at GM and Ford, once they said that they were going to defer some of their EV investments, that was part of taking the bloom off the rose, if you will, when it comes to EVs in the U.S. Finally, I want to take a look at Rivian, Fisker, and Lucid. I'm calling these the U.S. EV startups. You know how much their sales were up last year, Melissa? 151%. I know that investors will sit here and say, hey, look, Fisker has its issues. Lucid definitely has its issues. You know, there's nothing good happening here. They are growing sales, Melissa. It's just that the pace of sales growth is not what many thought it would be back in 2022, starting 2023. Phil, I want to get to hybrid electric vehicles versus EVs. Is there a sense that 
you know, when you lose an ICE customer to an alternative vehicle, uh, alternative energy vehicle, that that customer is more likely to go to hybrid. The numbers seem like they're going faster to hybrid as opposed to EV. They are going faster. When I talk with dealers, here's what I hear from them. Increasingly, customers are saying, I'm, I'm interested in electric, but I'm not quite there for taking the full step. How about a gas electric hybrid? And in this market, when you look at whether it's Toyota or Honda, Ford has the most offerings for hybrids among the, the big three. Increasingly, what I'm hearing from dealers is customers are more comfortable with that, partially because of price, but also because they want greater fuel economy. They're just not ready to go all the way when it comes to electric models. And the big thing that's got to change, Melissa, pricing. You have got to have more EVs that are coming closer to $40,000, $30,000. Until that happens, you're going to have a very limited market in terms of growth because you're selling an average EV at $51,000. There's growth there. There's just not a ton of growth. Do you think, Phil, that the major automakers um, sort of got offsides in terms of how they position their portfolio by going too fully into EVs versus recognizing that there could be an in-between, a hybrid electric vehicle market that could be actually robust and and profitable? Well, look, Jim Farley pivoted. And when did he do that? First quarter last year? I think Mm. that's when he said, you know what? There is a huge market here for hybrids. We can make the F-150 hybrid and there is demand there. So he pivoted and it's been successful for Ford. General Motors is sticking with its strategy in terms of you've got the ICE portfolio and then you've got the EV portfolio. But the pressure is going to be on GM this year that their Ultium battery cells, which they've had problems ramping up production, can they finally get it together in 2024? Because people are going to say, okay, you've got the Blazer that's out there now. Can you ramp up deliveries of that? The Silverado electric is out there. I've never heard anybody say to me, where's the Silverado electric? Some were delivered late in the fourth quarter, but it's it's very low on the radar. That's got to change in 2024. Phil, thank you. Always great to see you. Phil LeBeau. You bet. Um, so is GM going to pay for this, Tim? I mean, it seems a little bit like a misstep in terms of, you know, aligning your portfolio completely to EV, ICE or EV, and nothing in between, at this point at least. Well, it seems like, it's, especially when we're getting some data points this week, we heard about BYD, and as much as it was an exciting story how they exceeded Tesla in the fourth quarter, really, their, their story has been hybrid, and, and they are the largest player in the world on that. GM, uh, you, you would think that Detroit would be more focused on hybrid. It's easy to say this today. I get it. Uh, um, EV's been a story, certainly a high growth, a sexy story. But when you consider the powertrain mix and some of the ability to have and, and utilize a lot of their infrastructure, and again, uh, where Tesla and BYD, uh, these are vertically integrated companies. And in a lot of places, Detroit has tried to move very far away from that. Um, the hybrid kind of keeps them in their wheelhouse on some level, at least in terms of a lot of it. So um, I think GM's going to have to, look, it, it's, it, forget about where politicians are. Forget about where, like, the markets are, where people are able to raise money. It's where the customers are going. And, and the U.S. customers, I think, largely are leaning towards hybrid. Do you, do you think it was more po- political-driven why these companies went that way, I feel like there's, there's a healthy amount of that, right? Because that's where, I, where I'm I think it's 80% we're pushing Ford and GM to get certain benchmarks by, what is, what is the level now, 2030? I mean, you have to lower emissions, right? And the fastest way to do that is to sell an EV versus a hybrid fully EV. Fully EV, right. Yeah. So, so they could own that market. Tesla owns the EV market. They could really own that market. And then it makes me think about what critical elements go into these cars, that's a whole nother level, right? So you'll get a stock like MP, lithium, cobalt, nickel, 
all those things you don't need anymore, or you don't need them to the extent that you would for an EV. It's better for the environment. I think you're better to go to hybrid, and I think Ford and GM could win. You know, it's interesting. All the uh, pillars of the bear case for Tesla over the last few years have actually started to come true. Competition was a big one of them. Pricing was a big I mean, when you really think about it, and a lot of folks, we've been talking about it, we've been debating this stock for, for years now, and a lot of it has had to do with valuation, and here it is. Three years later from joining the S&P 500, it's basically the exact same spot where it was. The S&P in that time period is up 27% since late Q4 of 2020 when it was added to the S&P 500. It traded as high as 400. It traded as low as 100. It's trading the exact midpoint of that range. So it's really interesting. There is a very healthy bull bear debate going. And if you want to look at someone like me, who's obviously you guys are, you guys, I'm pointing at you guys, you know, think that I've been notoriously bearish on this company for a long time. Listen, well, it was your acronym. Yeah, it was. But but both <laughs> but both sides have been very right on this story. And I'll tell you why something's got to give is because it's three quarters of a trillion dollars in market cap. And we're talking about all the mistakes that GM and Ford have made. Interestingly, if you plot them all against each other, they're all basically where they were trading three years ago. You know what I mean? But one has a valuation that sticks out like a sore thumb and is the one to come after. And I, I, I think we some of this is all rooted in the stock market because, again, the valuation uh, is because of not only I, I just think the buzz and the hype around it is Tesla far out ahead. There's no question about it. But but, you know, you look at a Fisker or a Nikola or these companies that are going out of business or, you know, about to be there. And first of all, they came. They came public in SPACs where no one really had to check a lot of the, the projected numbers around them. No one really cared during a time when markets were flying. Uh, Tesla, five years ago, almost went out of business. I mean, I, I was I'll just say it this way in terms of their balance sheet. Um, you, you know, so maybe that's that's an exaggeration other than to say I do think their, their finances were um, very, very much stretched. And I do think that capital markets allowed them an opportunity through the share price to raise a lot of money. So the point is, though, that even the best of them all um, was struggling financially with a balance sheet. If you look at all the other EV players that are pure EV players around the world, they're struggling financially. I think what's interesting, too, is that when we thought about the EV competition in the landscape, particularly when it came to these startups, you thought about who else had these EVs and you thought Tesla has a sexy car, et cetera. But you didn't think hybrids were going to be the competition <laughs> for some of these because the price tag is way too high and Americans may prefer to have a hybrid just because they're, they have range anxiety at this point, Julie. Yeah, absolutely. I think what people forget, right, is that Toyota, when it released its Prius in the very first, I don't know, two or three years, that car took off like crazy. And that is easily the ugliest car I've ever seen in my life, right? But they were nice able call. to do that, right? Because the price was right. And that's really what's been holding back EVs, I think, is just the pricing has been such a problem for them. So for many people who would like to move in that direction, it's not even just regular hybrids, but these plug-in hybrids that allow you to avoid going to the gas station when you're just doing your regular commute. But if you want to take a trip two to three to four hours out, you can do that with zero anxiety. And the thing is, too, is you think of it from an environmental standpoint, you're taking a lot of the emissions off the road, but you're doing it with less need for these huge, intense batteries that are actually pretty pretty negative for the environment. So to me, these plug-in hybrids make the most sense, and it's all about pricing for consumers. 
Our next guest says barriers to entry into the EV market are still far too high for consumers, and that could call the electric transition into question. Alexander Edwards is president of Strategic Vision. The firm provides consumer insights on the auto industry. Alexander, great to have you with us. You know, a lot of car makers, and I'm thinking really of Tesla, they're cutting price, thinking that consumers will come at that point. What does your research show in terms of consumers' willingness to make that trade-off, to not go hybrid, to not stick with with the ICE engines, and to actually go EV I mean, does price really make a difference? If Tesla came out and said $10,000 less, would that, would that move the needle? Absolutely would move the needle. Uh, as we've been discussing, price is a really important issue when it comes to uh, how consumers think about, are they going to purchase a certain vehicle? But it's more than just price. It really comes to, are most consumers willing to pay more for what they perceive as a compromise. And that could be a compromise for the distance it can go, for how they refuel and charging issues, as well as uh, the price where they're spending more money. And so for every dollar they spend, they're getting less convenience, less mobility out of that. So we already have in, you know, a lot of incentives associated with buying an EV. So the price comes down because of that. The price comes down also from the manufacturer. So we're seeing all sorts of price enhancements uh, for the consumer at this point. Do you think that it's enough or do you think the EV market will still will still hit a road bump, so to speak, um, simply because of that trade off, not willing to make that trade off? Well, yes. And, and, and we're going to see that Uh, You know, we have different mandates going in various states as well as desires for federal mandates in order to have EVs be the primary vehicle. Um, We're not going to be able to hit those because consumers aren't ready to go there. Um, Right now, we've got roughly about 60 percent of everyone who purchases an EV saying that the government incentive uh, as well as manufacturer incentives were an important part in that decision. If we ever get to a place where we take away those incentives or if we can't get the price even lower, as uh, some folks have said already earlier today, uh, you're going to have a much smaller market to go for. Uh, People love their EVs, but the compromises they have to make, especially when it comes to is there a place that I'm going to be able to charge and not get stuck at? Because I've heard so many stories of others that love their EVs, but are satisfied or maybe even a little disappointed in what's going on with charging and other aspects to go around with EV ownership today. Hey, Alexander, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. How about some of the sacrifices that the the manufacturers have to make? And and I just want to get into some of the structural dynamics of the difference between, and we keep saying ICE, I I don't mean to be patronizing, but for folks at home, that's an internal combustion engine. So uh, ICE versus EV and hybrid, Um, you know, the the big three, obviously, but Toyota, I mean, these are companies, uh, and it gets down to the sales force. And and remember, you know, at least Tesla is famous, and so is Rivian for going straight to consumer. The way the traditional companies are set up is very different than these new companies. Um, Is that part of why hybrid maybe still is going to be, you know, the one that wins out? Well, I I think that's certainly going to be part of it. Um, Dealers know how to sell hybrids. They they know how to sell ICE vehicles. And when it comes to EVs, there's still a lot of uh, difficulty in knowing exactly what are the right levelers or things they could say in order to motivate that sale. Um, and, and so they know how to do that. But, but more importantly, consumers have an understanding of what they need for their own personal mobility. They know I have to go here, here, and here, and I want to do it in a certain way. Uh, Tesla's found a lot of success because they uh, didn't sell an EV 
they sell a sports car with best-in-class performance. Whenever the consumer stepped on that accelerator, it was safer because it was more responsive and it was more fun to drive. This is why Tesla found success and everyone else really struggled because Tesla was selling something that wasn't a compromise. It was best-in-class. Um, if we're going to try to continue to sell EVs simply because it's electric, we're never going to see sales that are in numbers that are going to be 2030 and heaven forbid in California by 2035, 100%. We can't get there. We need to make sure that we address price, infrastructure, and how consumers use their vehicles today. We're not a political show, Alexander, as you know, but you had some uh, a political commentary embedded in your survey, which I thought was interesting in that it, it shows maybe another reason to be reluctant to buy an EV. And you say it's because people associate EVs with Democrats. Is that what you're finding? Mm -hmm. uh it is a, an aspect to it. So right now there are a number of, of buyers that when, they, when, they, when everybody looks at anything in a consumer world, they give it a personality. And one personality that is emerging in the EV market is that EVs are Democrats, progressives. And there are a number of consumers who would love what an EV has to offer but are actually rejecting it because of that imagery and personality that's been emerging. Uh, we've been trying to caution both legislatures uh, as well as those uh, at OEM, at the manufacturers saying, uh, please, let's try to keep all of this, um, you know, uh, talking about how EVs have to be what sells. Um, otherwise, you're going to make it political. And if you make it political, you're going to remove potential uh, buyers from the whole situation. And, and that's proving to be a imaginary barrier uh, to right. real EV consideration. Alexander, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Interesting findings. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, everyone. All right, so here's a would you rather. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll pose it to Tim. Okay. Uh, GM or Toyota, in the context of this conversation, Okay, that, that helps. Uh, definitely Toyota. <laughs> no, because, I mean, Toyota, first of all, and by the way, Julie's Prius has actually been redesigned and apparently is pretty sleek and sporty. Um, but I, I think... That was a lib car. That was a lib well, car. Well, the point really being that I think Toyota is in the driver's seat on hybrids. I think Toyota, uh, as a global company, I happen to think the valuation is interesting, even though we know GM's cheap. Um, I own GM. Um, and, and so I, I believe that the story we have tonight is very good for GM. If you think about a company that's really been given zero credit for their internal combustion. In the valuation, you really, you know, you're, you're almost being punished by it. But I do like Toyota on the would you rather. On the would you rather, I'll go with Toyota as well. Phil came out with one of his reports and they own the hybrid market. So if we think that's where the puck is going, you have to buy, you have to buy the stock. And, and the other ones, yes, they could bounce off at an incredible low. And getting back to Democrat, Republican, the Cybertruck would never, we should have asked him that. There's no way that's a Liberal. I'm surprised Steve didn't would you rather rather on that. That was a no, great time for him I, to I, introduce I, yeah. something else. Good. It's to my, it's 20, my 2020 vote. Well, I'm, I'm going to do that, actually. <laughs> I mean, I'm, not playing, I'm not playing your game. No, if I told you in 2021 at the start of the year, we were looking at Tesla. OK, so that's how we were just talking about that three year ago period that the consensus was for 80 percent earnings growth, 50 percent uh, revenue growth, 25 percent gross margins and volume growth okay, of 80 percent. And flash forward three years in 2024, OK, to start that year. 
year that the expectations were for 25% revenue growth, 22% earnings growth, 25% margins that have gone to 19% over that time period, okay, and volume growth that is only going to be 22%. Would you think the stock is going to be higher, lower, or the same, which it is right now? I think we'd all say it would be much lower, right? That would be a deterioration with the fundamentals. I think he does a masterful job of changing the, the narrative, and I think he's changed it now to charging. So I think now the charging could be a $5 billion business and growing, but I agree with the way you set it up. And in between, there was a robo-taxi sort of... Right, but so let's just say this, but let's just say if the charging thing doesn't materialize because the hybrid thing is more of a thing, and people who buy hybrids, I had one in 2006. It was fantastic. I know a lot of people who are opting for them too because if you live and you drive 30 miles locally or something like that, that's a great alternative. You still don't go have to go to the gas station, but you have a full tank of gas unless you need to drive 200 miles or 300 miles or something like that. So to me, that narrative, Steve, could fall away very quickly, in my opinion, and if you have declining margins on the cars. Well, that also means that GM has more heavy lifting to do than the others, Julie. Yeah, absolutely. I think the problem that they have is that, you know, we take it for granted how easy it is to do this kind of switch off between the gas and the electric, but it's actually pretty complex. And, you know, I agree when it's a would you rather GM versus Toyota, I would much rather Toyota because not only do they have the experience branding these cars, but they actually know how to make them good cars. And I think that's been a challenge for a lot of the American players is, they're not selling them as the, you know, sexy street rods that Tesla is, and they don't really have a positioning that helps them differentiate. They're just sort of these EVs that are kind of whatever. And so I think that's the real the real work that they have to do, GM has to do, is to create some product differentiation that gives people a reason to use them. And if they can't do it in EV, then they should do it in hybrid. Just curious, Tim, because initially when I posed the would you rather, you said in this context, okay, those are the parameters, I understand them. If, if just given carpool. GM, GM's the most discounted. Okay. And, and GM's been punished by their core business, which has never been run better. All right. Coming up, airlines taking flight. It's wheels up for this part of the travel trade, closing out the first week of the year. Is it time to book your ticket to ride? We'll debate that. Plus, Constellation Brands jumping after this morning's earnings report. How beer played a starring role in the stock's reaction when fast money rolls on. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee. Right here on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Constellation Brands popping after an earnings beat. Stellar beer sales driving the success of the quarter, but their revenues did fall short. The company blaming an 8% drop in wine sales for the miss. Constellation warning that its wine segment will continue to face near-term headwinds. And the company did slash its sales forecast for the fiscal year. How concerned should we be about this revenue miss? Uh, recently, other consumer names like General Mills, Nike, they've reported some similar challenges. Or Are the stories too different? Well, if you look at the beer, wine and spirit space, I think we've been concerned about it for a while. There was a period in which, especially coming out of COVID, that the luxury spirits brands were able to pass on all pricing. They had a lot of insulation from some of the dynamics around the consumer. They had the the, the luxury factor of the Asia buyer and some of those places that didn't care. But I, I think it's real. I, I mean, but what you're seeing in these segments within these liquor companies, especially in Constellation, I mean, beer has been in consolidation for a long time. And the fact that it's moving into wine is interesting. Um, and that the spirits is actually maybe stabilized, and this is where they have some margin. I think Constellation is a fantastic investment. I think Diageo in the space is more interesting in terms of a performance. It's really underperformed. Uh, this Constellation chart, though, has been kind of a rock. Kudos to Guy, who brought this up the other night when we were talking about cannabis. Yeah. Um, it is amazing that Modelo is still the number one selling beer in the United States and that it's been able to hold on to those gains after the initial protests. Yeah, I think people switch and then they just stay pretty loyal to wherever they're going. But if you, if you look at the stock, the Constellation, the stock was below all of its moving averages. It's popped above. But if you look at the 200-day moving average, which I believe is right around 240 or so, that's where you want to use that exit. I, th- I think if it fails. But I think the guidance, that was a big guide lower on net sales. They were looking for flat or sideways, and you go to 7%. So to your first question, I think it is something to worry about. But I think people are making it okay. Beer up, wine down, it's a zero-sum game. I think there's something to worry about there. I think with Ozempic and all the GLPs, I think that probably plays into it too. I mean, speaking of games, we, we often play the game of if I told you the news, what would you guess the stock price would do? And if I told you the news, I don't know if you would think Constellation Brands would be up sharply, Julie. Would you? Absolutely not. I mean, I think reading reading that report, I was like, oof, this is going to be rough. But, you know, look at where the stock is trading. And I think it's a reflection that we kind of all know that wine sales have been very, very soft. They kind of continue to do so despite all of my hard work. Um, And, you know, I would just say going forward, it's important that they address these problems, right? Because it is a big part of the business. I think management changes are probably ahead for this business on the wine side. And then in the meantime, I think you're okay because capital allocation is moving towards more share repurchase to support the stock. So, you know, net net, I think at the end of the day, the earnings outlooks look pretty good. One of the fascinating things about Constellation is their their Modelo brand, which is you know number one beer, um, was Budweiser's beer uh, ten years ago when Ambev Bud was forced uh, through that merger to sell off assets, and it went right to Constellation, where Corona and Modelo have made them a monster, um, and no one expected that, especially not Bud. In fact, Bud's fortunes have gone the other direction. All right, there's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. The countdown to Bitcoin's ETFs is on. As red-hot anticipation nears reality, we'll sit down with a top industry insider to give us the lowdown on how this will change the crypto universe. Plus, Apple going from magnificent to magnificent at the start of the new year. Will the tech titan struggle ripple through the rest of the market? We'll debate that coming up. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, 
AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money. Put your seatbelts or seats in the upright position, seatbelts on, because airline stocks are taking off. The group reaching cruising altitude with some big gains today. JetBlue, American, Delta, and others all climbing. The moves come even as energy ticks higher, crude oil creeping up 3% this week. How are you trading airlines these days, Tim? I'm trading from the long side. I typically do. I trade them a lot, though, and I do think they're stocks you trade. And I think we've had a pretty good rally. Look, we had a you know 40% move in this space, and then they tend to be caught up in also the macro that has been around uh, some concern on energy prices, which is actually should be good for them. Uh, but it's, sometimes it's indicative of where people think the economy is going. I think the valuations in the space are really interesting. I don't think you have to go too far afield uh, from Delta Airlines, which is uh, uh, definitely where I trade in and out. The, the only... Uh headwind that I see is geopolitical, where there's so much tensions that people might not want to have an international flight. So maybe you go with a domestic or JetBlue or something closer to home because you're more apt to fly down to Florida from New York versus fly to Europe with everything that's going on. So those international carriers, that could be something to watch in the next couple of months. Julie? I think that, you know, where I would like to be is probably with Tim on Delta, right? Because if I think of the mix of their business, 45% of revenue is generated in the main cabin and the rest is in the front or on their credit card. So to me, you're exposed to the right type of shopper and we're seeing corporate demand really, really fill out in a way that's more meaningful. And I think it insulates them from any kind of downturns that we're seeing. I also think that in terms of capacity, which is just so critical to understanding airlines, they're the ones who have been the most pro- proactive and thoughtful about how they manage their capacity expansion. At the same time, Dan, if you believe the consumer is going to have difficulty, you might not want to be in airlines. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it brings us back to what I think Julie just said, where they get, you know, half of the revenues and, and such. And so as long as uh, business spending kind of hangs in there, that'll be good. I, just real quickly on crude oil, because you started the conversation that way. It is interesting. It looks like it's trying to put a little bit of a bottom here using 770 as a bit of support. Maybe that is Steve's geopolitical sort of tensions. But today, to see a lot of the market down and see airlines up on a day that crude was up more than 2%, that definitely, I think, caught all of our eyes. Yeah. Coming up, NVIDIA shares rebounding at the end of a tough week for tech. The chart piquing the interest of one of our more skeptical traders, the way he's thinking about diving into his bearish to bullish reversal. Plus, the long-awaited Bitcoin ETF is closer to reality now than ever before. We'll sit down with the top industry insider to find out what to expect, when to expect it, and how to take advantage of a new way to play crypto. We're Fast Money in two. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks continue to rebound to close out the week, but the major averages locking in their first week of losses in the last 10. The Dow up 29 points, the S&P gaining 8.5 points, and the Nasdaq up just about one-tenth of a percent. Instacart parent Maple Bear dropping to a new all-time low, dating back to its IPO last September, down 25% since that date. And Palantir falling nearly 2% on a downgrade to underperform over at Jefferies. The firm saying Palantir's AI narrative is overhyped, and the cybersecurity stock cannot justify its valuation. 
Meantime, a rough uh, start to the year for Apple. The stock is down almost 6% this week. The move, part of the reason the major averages lost their nine-week winning streak. Are we at a point in the cycle where it is so goes Apple, so goes the market, or can we move on without Apple? Because it seems like there are plenty of doubts about where Apple is right now. Yeah, and I think that's actually a good thing if you're an Apple bull running into their quarter at the end of the month here. The sentiment has gotten really bad in a very short period of time. When you come to think about, you know, it just made a new all-time high just a couple weeks ago. And just to have a few analysts and and the way it's been sold relative to the S&P and the NASDAQ in such a short period of time, I think it also says a little bit about how large tech investors see the opportunity set in 2024 for an Apple relative to some of its mega cap peers because they don't have that gen AI uh, component to the story right now, but that could emerge over the course of this year. Well, uh, and Steve probably has to be on the chart. I'll let him talk about it where it's pushing us against that 200. But I'll just talk about Apple, the, the allocation choice. And, and I, I think you can make an argument that Apple's weakness, as long as it, as it isn't extraordinary, is an argument for the broader market and the broader economy. And, and I, I think we, we all know that the year that was last year was the type I don't think we're going to see again for the Magnificent Seven. I, I, I think Having Microsoft and Apple participate but not necessarily be going to the moon uh, and falling through the floor is great for the overall market. So part of this to me is just the allocation we've seen for the equal weighted S&P, which I think is going to be a theme for 2024. Yeah, we showed that chart with the 200-day moving average, so I'll go to Steve on this one, but it looks like it's right there right now. Yeah, so, so this has the propensity to break through, but the level of support is around the mid-160, so 165 is probably an area where you want to really pay attention to the stock. If it breaks down, then it could be a precipitous drop. But we've all seen everyone bet against Apple time and time again. And in bad markets, everyone looks for, for the balance sheet. In good markets, everyone looks for the balance sheet. So it's sheet. a win-win situation, the ultimate defensive stock? So I, I think Apple is the ultimate defensive stock. It's 7.5% of the S&P. So yes, as, as the market goes, but between Apple and Microsoft, as they go, so goes the, the overall market. But I think I'd rather see it break that 165 before I say lights out for Apple. I'm still a believer. Yeah. How about you, Julie? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think if you have both Microsoft and Apple, you have consumed, you have the consumer and then you have enterprise. And so that kind of tells you what's going on in the economy. You know, I think taking a breather here is a positive thing for the market, being able to have more breadth. You still have a lot of consumer exposure with this business and the services are great, but, you know, they can't kind of propel the whole thing. You need the iPhone sales to be there. I think until China really starts to work, this is probably a tough place to be. But I say that as an Apple holder for the last 11 years, right? I look forward to the opportunities where it dips down because I think long term, it's just a core holding. You know, you mentioned they don't have Gen AI yet, and they have a Worldwide Developers Conference coming up, I think, June, June right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, all they have to do is just talk about it, right? Yeah. And then and there'll be some leaks. Higher. They like to do that. It, Gene Munster was talking about it last night on the yeah. show. And, and I think he's right. I think there's just a lot of opportunities in and around. You know, you mentioned Siri. That was your joke last night. But spatial computing and, and they're just embedded in a lot of these services. I just think there's a lot of opportunities for them to do that. And they don't have to lead. This is not Apple's never led in, yeah. in the sort of right. innovation. They catch up. They have a better product. And they, um, you know, have this ecosystem that really works. And they have an installed base of $2 billion. I don't want to sound too bullish on 
the name because I think there's probably lower lows to come. And, you know, they do need a couple turns off on its valuation a little bit, in my opinion. And then when a lot of this stuff is underappreciated, that's when it sets up pretty good. But this really captures the sort of themes in the market for the first week of the trading year in terms of allocation to value, uh, allocation to stocks that have been beaten down, et cetera. And, and what we're willing to pay for stocks. Right. So the story with Apple is like nothing's changed with Apple. We know they've been slowly actually losing sales growth, at least some of the top line and certainly in, in the iPhone progression. But uh, are we paying 30 times for Apple or just 25? And that has a big deal. And I think that's really what the market is going to wrestle with next year. All right. Coming up. This year. This year. I know. I said that I yesterday know. night, too. Uh, coming up, all aboard the AI train, one of our traders is ready to hitch his investing wagons to the top dog in the space. After setting out much of this run, he'll reveal his options play to get in on the action. And the next Bitcoin Frontier reports after the bell saying the SEC is set to make its decision next week on whether or not to approve a series of spot Bitcoin ETFs. How will that change the game for crypto? We'll break that down when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. AI's golden boy, NVIDIA, has been on a tear over the past year with shares up 244%. One of our traders is finally joining the NVIDIA crowd, but is doing it with a twist. Um, Dan, how many times did you try to short NVIDIA? A couple times, and a couple times it worked last year. Let's be very clear. When this stock gapped up, to $400 and spent the last six months of the year, the second half of the year, you know, tra- trading between 400 and 500 Okay, so there's plenty of money to be made on this. And i got to be clear, I wasn't poo-pooing what the products that they had and the services they had, just the enthusiasm around the stock. But here's a different scenario right now. And Carter Braxton Worth got me thinking about this yesterday because I asked him about this. And, you know, if you just look at the technical setup right here, the fact that it's been consolidating, it's underperformed the S&P 500 pretty massively and much of the NASDAQ over the last few months. Look at the RSI. The stock is actually corrected without correcting relative to the market here. And this looks kind of interesting to me because now it's butting up against those prior all-time highs after this long consolidation. It's outperforming this week. We just spent some time talking about how some of these mega caps are doing. And what I find really interesting is that, yes, it's grown into its valuation right now. But I don't want to own this thing. I think it sets up as a good trade using options. No, 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 no. no. You're going to get your times. But it sets up as a very interesting trade. And I'll tell you why. 40% 40% of their customers are going to report the last week of this month. They don't report until late February. So trade it into their earnings because I don't want to be there when I think they are going to show deceleration in their own results and their own guidance. So here I was looking at the options, okay? Look at that. That's implied volatility. That's the price of options. It's very near a one-year low. That's telling me if I want to basically make a directional bet in this, I can define my risk at cheap prices. So I want to look out to February expiration. I want to look at the 500 call in February. Cost you $16. Stock trading around $490 right now. That's 3% of the stock price. It breaks even up 5%. This stock moves on average 3% a day or so, and I have more than a month for this to play out with all those earnings catalysts of its main clients, so, uh, customers. So again, Again, this is a trade. It's not an investment. I'm not doing about face on this. I do think in late February when they report, they're going to show deceleration relative to what consensus thinks. And I think that will be the top in the stock for a while. You had a question. Mr. I, I did have a question. I raised my hand because, you know, yeah. that's what we do around here. Yeah. And and uh, by the way, I feel like I was just teleported back into an older episode of, of Options Action. I a know. great cool. show. Uh, that they're doing that in the network, That's a different. We'd be no, done right now. I, true. <laughs> I, I like the call. And I, I hear you as a trader. I guess my question, though, goes back 
to, um, I kind of feel like in the semi space, we know NVIDIA was an outperformer, but I feel like it's like, are you either investing in that neighborhood or not? Does this trade work across the semi space? Because I kind of feel like that's where we are with semis right now. If they underperform, the entire market's going to underperform, and they very might yeah. based upon last year. Well, here's the one thing, right? So right now we have a NASDAQ that's down 3%. Let's just say it goes down a little more. This stock continues to show good relative strength. That call lets you hang in there a little bit. And then if we are to get a rally back, I would expect NVIDIA to actually outperform to the upside, and you could find this trade in the money very quickly. So I just like the optionality of the trade. Nice. I see what you yeah. did there. Yeah. Um, but going back to the original sort of notion that uh, – you know, we're differentiating the trades. Are you thinking that semiconductors move as a group still, or there's differentiation between AI versus the ones exposed to industrial and and automotive, et cetera? Well, and I'll refer to it as this year and not next year. I think this year, (laughs) um, and by the way, Happy New Year, Guy. I think you've got an enormous opportunity to pick stocks. And I think within semis, obviously, you have a significant uh, difference in the scope of their business models. But um, I do think if we're trading this market, at least in terms of where leadership has come from or where we might lose it, I, I think I think semis as a group will largely trade together. I think NVIDIA will certainly be uh, turbocharged. And I do agree, it's highest quality. People want to buy weakness there, too. Let's be clear. But, yes, I think semis trade as a group. You're still in Micron? Um, no, I'm not in Micron currently. I think this the, Micron I still think is a good bet in that, in that space because it's underestimated. And we're more DRAM NAND. And if AI really hits... That's going to be the overall demand. But NVIDIA, if you look at it, 20 to 25 percent is based on database. And that's China is, is that's China's revenue uh, contribution. So I, I think Dan's on to something very well thought out. And I like the fact that you didn't take one side or the other. You played it down the fairway. Mm-hmm. So I, I think NVIDIA actually could sell off here. So I think that was your second part of it. No, listen, I just think the China stuff, that's all going to be a 2024 story. But think about 40 percent of their revenue, okay, comes from Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta and Amazon. And if they are able to report stuff that is supportive of the story right now, it should work into early February. But I don't want to be there for their earnings when they guide for the balance of the year. Coming up, the crypto clock is ticking. Investors waiting with bated breath for SEC approval of a Bitcoin ETF. How it could reshape the crypto landscape and what our next guest is calling the next battleground for the space. That's ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Crypto investors still eagerly awaiting a spot Bitcoin ETF reports out in just the last hour that the SEC is telling firms to submit final paperwork ahead of that potential approval. More than 13 companies have filed for the fund. And our next guest says after approval, there's a new battleground in the space. Let's bring in Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares, Melton Demures. Melton, great to see you. Um, I want to get to the battleground in a minute, but I'm just I, I'm curious because now we know that the vote is scheduled for sometime next week to, uh, on these various applications. Is this going to be a sell the news event? Uh, well, first of all, I think we need to get a little chimney. It feels like the papal conclave. You know, we're waiting for the white smoke. <laughs> We've been waiting for a while, but certainly uh, this is a very hyped event, most talked about event, and I never want to talk about ETFs ever again after this. But look, I don't think this is a sell the news event, and here is why. Um, let's just talk about flows. You know, I love talking about uh, flows, and flows are really how we figure out how people are trading sentiment. And if we look at what happened last year, In the last week of 2023, $243 million of flows into crypto ETPs, primarily Bitcoin, $2.2 billion for the year last year. Um, 
it's not stopping. There is demand for Bitcoin. When these new products launch, we've heard there's uh, one issuer that's seeding their fund with 200 million. Rumors now that BlackRock is coming in with 2 billion. All of that leads to buying of Bitcoin, at least to demand for Bitcoin. So I don't think it's a sell the news event because Bitcoin limited in supply. That's one of the really interesting, unique properties of it. So what's that battleground that you think is coming? The battleground, it's the battleground for all asset managers. Fees, baby. Fees, fees, fees. We're all about the fees. And here's what's really interesting. Fidelity came out of the gate really early on, uh, two weeks ago, 39 basis points. That's pretty low for a specialty ETF. We were thinking it would be in the 70 to 100 basis point range. Grayscale right now, the Grayscale Trust is 250 basis points. We've got Fidelity at 39. Um, Invesco and Galaxy are zero until the first $5 billion in AUM. I believe BlackRock is coming out at 80. So the fee game is going to be an interesting one because they're all the same thing. It's, it's Bitcoin. How much will brand matter and how much of this will be about fees? I'm surprised that GBTC is such high fees. I didn't realize that. Extraordinary. Uh, Meltem, it's Tim. Hey, thanks for joining us. So what's after Bitcoin? Uh, I mean, Ethereum, I guess. And, and is this going to open up? I mean, look, we, we, we begin the process now for moving out crypto in, in terms of liquidity and exposure. Is, is, and what's the timing? Look, I think Bitcoin is obviously the first. Bitcoin also has the most regulatory clarity. Gary Gensler, the SEC, has repeatedly stated Bitcoin is not a security. There is no interpretation as such. Um, I think Bitcoin needs to be, you know, it needs to take some time for the Bitcoin ETF to trade. I think when it comes to other crypto assets, it's going to take some time just because there isn't that long track record. As of uh, two days ago, Bitcoin, 15 years old, the Bitcoin network first block was mined 15 years ago. Bitcoin's been around for a long time. Battle tested. Markets are very deep, very liquid. We don't really see that in the longer tail of crypto assets. But what we do know is there's tremendous investor demand. Today, there is over 50 billion in global AUM across crypto ETPs. Now, 38 billion of that or over 75% is in Bitcoin. But the next 10 billion, Ethereum, then we've got Solana, very popular this uh, recent year, and mm-hmm. a long tail of others. But I do think it's just going to take some time for the market to get comfortable. Melton, great to see you. Thank you. Melton Demures. Up next, we got your final trade. Time for the final trade. Tim Seymour. We talked about the spirits companies. We talked about some of the pressures there. I think Diageo, largest global spirits company in the world with some pricing power. It's been on a terrible run. It's starting to bottom. I like the stock here. Stephen Grasso. Marriott International. I know everyone's worried about the economy, but if people have jobs, they're spending money. And if you look at that chart, very interesting chart. Julie Beal. Market access. You know, we got reports on high yield, high grade volume. They're moving in the right direction. And this is the leader. Dan Nathan. You know, Mel. Yes. We yes, love Dan. we love fast money. Oh, yes, of course we do. But Are options actually will always be our baby. I, that was the first show I ever hosted. That's right. And you were amazing fashion. at it. Uh, you know, but we did a little OA tonight. And it was kind of fun. It felt like pretty retro there. So, NVIDIA, I think it sets up as an interesting trade using calls, defining your risk, and playing some catalyst. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money, the first trading week of the year. Mad Money Over. from Kramer starts right now. 
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 